0: And now for something completely different. It's Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money. Markets. Life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts.
1: Presented by RIA Advisors. And hey, good morning. Welcome to the show. It is, of course, the week before Christmas and all through the house, Brent was not stirring so there you go he's in the house <laughs> so uh, yeah so here we are it is the week before Christmas and of course this is a holiday shortened week of course on terms of trading because uh, markets will be closed on the uh, later this week for the Christmas holiday since Christmas actually falls on a Saturday kind of feel like I get ripped off when Christmas falls on a Saturday right just Feels like a waste of a, a yeah. waste of day, right? Yeah. It's just waste a holiday. Exactly. Falling on Saturday,
2: so let's take Christmas Eve off.
1: It should see we should change Christmas to being the last Friday, the third Friday of every month. So or long, long as it's not on the thirteenth. Yeah. Well, that, we wouldn't want that? But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, this will be a holiday shortened week. Markets will close early this week on Friday. Uh, so then that way, uh, of course, the only is this four days of trading and look market volume is already light anyway. And of course, now this week, it's going to be even lighter. Of course, this morning, markets aren't looking very good here at the open. Unfortunately, now on Friday, the market sold off a bit, uh, did hold on to the 50 day moving average on Friday. So um, this has kind of been critical support. Now, we're not back down to the lows of where we were uh, in right around Thanksgiving. So we do have a little bit more downside to here today. But. Uh, this downside is going to get challenged this morning at the open, so that support from the November lows needs to hold here. Now, as we've been talking about for the last, you know, kind of couple of weeks, we're, we're now set up for the kind of end of the year seasonal push. First movement, first week of January tends to be positive. Well, this is because mutual funds, you know, dress portfolios, and then you have uh, beginning of the year positioning. That's just how statistically kind of the the tendency works. Does that mean absolutely guaranteed that Santa Claus is going to come to town this year? Who knows? Now, statistically speaking, if Santa Claus doesn't visit Broad and Wall, uh, that does have some implications for the rest of the year. Now, you've heard how the first five days of January dictate the month. The month of January dictates the year. This is just kind of statistical trends over time. But again, there, that what all that is is if you don't see that kind of positioning, uh, you know, put into place right at the end of the year, it kind of really bodes well for a change in psychology. People getting more cautious on markets and positioning going forward. So again, that's the one thing we're watching here closely. Again, markets are going to open down this morning at the open, and the reason, of course, was over the weekend the BBB. Is now dead. So that the Build Back Better bill, uh, pretty much for the most part, Joe Manchin killed it, um, put the final nail in the coffin. As some of the headlines this morning, um, you know, he's not going to vote for this kind of excessive government spending at a time where we're already running a lot of debt. And really, um, while the headlines are all really kind of bashing Joe Manchin for not buying off into this deal, he had said he would vote for it as long as it was pretty much paid for and a lot of that was based on the score that came back from the CBO so they all sent it off to the CBO who sent it back and said yeah it's going to cost roughly 3 to 4 trillion dollars over the next decade and that was really what set Joe Manchin off at that point he's not willing to put a whole lot more inflationary and non-productive debt in the market's good for him i mean this is something we've talked about for a long time these programs are not good economically long term they give you a little bit of short term benefit but the long-term problems of having to pay off that debt, not having productive investment, but having non-productive investment is, is, is worse long-term than the short-term benefit. And this is the one thing, you know, we, we hear from Bernie Sanders and a lot of the other kind of the socialist commentary, you know, saying, oh, we need to give people money. That doesn't help people. It actually makes things worse for them long term. It sounds good in the short term. is like, hey, let's give people money. And they'll have more money to spend. Yeah, they will have more money to spend. But you're going to create inflationary pressures in the economy that eat up all of that additional money you gave them plus more. And this is always the thing that we forget, is that non-productive debt does not lead to long term economic prosperity. And that's really the things that we want to be focusing on getting people back to work, helping them create jobs. If you want to give people a hand up, right, that's fine. But giving them a hand out doesn't get them there. It actually makes things worse for them. So if you want to create an economic prosperity cycle within the economy, create jobs, provide training programs, teach people how to weld, how to do construction, how to do uh, work on cars. Those are the things that people always need. Plumbers, electricians, those will always have a job somebody needs that work all the time. Trust me, Brent never fixes a toilet. So it just, that is just,
2: (laughs) that's where I draw the line. That's where you draw the line.
1: He'll fix (laughs) a sink, not a toilet. There you go. But that's, you know, this is where we've kind of lost our way in terms of government programs. It's easier just to give people money and it sounds good and it's a great way to buy votes, but it doesn't help people long-term create better economic prosperities. This is, but again, the, the killing of that additional liquidity, right? This is Kind of the markets we're looking for next year in terms of economic growth that all this liquidity coming in from the Build Back Better program, the infrastructure bill, et cetera, all lift economic growth. Now, uh, part of the part that's weighing on the markets this morning, Goldman Sachs cutting estimates for economic growth in 2022 by about half a point a quarter. So economic growth is going to very quickly drop back towards that two, two and a half percent growth rate next year pretty much in line with normal economic trends that we've seen over the last decade. But that surge of economic activity that we had over the last year or so because of 4 or $5 trillion worth of liquidity, that's now going to return back to norms. The important thing about this is when it comes to the stock market in particular, though, That's also going to mean pressure on profit margins. One of the things that has been really kind of driving the stock market here over the last several months has been expectations of these, you know, really accelerated earnings growth, you know, uh, rising profit margins, all these type of things. Well, that's all going to come under a lot of pressure next year as we begin to see slower economic growth that's going to create more pressure on profit margins. Combine that with higher rates of inflation. That's going to weigh on profit margins and earnings reports as we go forward. So again, seeing a bit of repricing in the markets here short term is not surprising. Again, doesn't take away the probability that we've got to do some repositioning. Markets are starting to get back towards oversold levels. Probably by the end of uh, of today's actions, we'll be back more to oversold levels. Again, while we haven't seen that Santa Claus rally yet, the markets are kind of setting up for it. The, The one kind of negative that, you know, we're watching very closely is our money flow uh, sell in, uh, indicator is very close to tripping over into a sell signal, which would suggest more pressure on market short-term. Again, doesn't mean that's got to happen. We'll have to see kind of how the market works out today. Important, though, as we kind of go back <clears throat> to what we talked about a few minutes ago, important the markets kind of hold those support levels back from November. If not, there's not a whole lot of support down to about 4,400 on the S&P, so a little bit more downside drag over the course of this week. And again, light volatility this week, nobody's around. Christmas and then people come back for trading after Christmas through New Year's, not a lot of people around for that either. So again, over the next two weeks, we already had a lack of liquidity problem. That liquidity is gonna get a lot more thin over the course of the next two weeks, which is gonna suggest there's gonna be a lot of volatility. So be careful, you know, knee-jerk reaction to movements in the markets, because these things are gonna be whippy all week long and you're going to sell, you know, try to buy or sell and likely be on the wrong side of the trade. And that's just kind of, you know, history, you know, history says that that's kind of the way it's going to look like over the next couple of weeks. So just be a little careful. Watch your exposures here, of course. Keep your stops in place. But again, try not to make knee jerk reactions on daily moves because they're going to be all over the board for the next two weeks. OK, come back. We have a lot of stuff to get into this morning. Um, be sure to get by the website. Our latest blog posts are out. Our newsletters out from this weekend new revised format, lots of new charts and analysis on markets in the newsletter. So simply go by the website, click on the newsletter link. And if you're not getting it by email, just subscribe to it. We'll send it to you every weekend as well. So you have it in your inbox. Be right back after the break for more of The Real Investment Show.
0: Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Don't let
2: 2022 be a repeat of the past year. Join Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso for their essential smart money tips for the new year Candid Coffee event on Saturday, January 15th. You'll learn the landmines to avoid, tax advantages we see, and money tips you need to know in the new year. Register now for our next Candid Coffee at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
1: Welcome back to the show this morning. It's uh, 617 as we kind of get this morning edition under the way. Of course, it is Monday, the week before Christmas. And uh, the bad news is if you haven't ordered it yet, it ain't coming on time. So just uh, prepare everyone. (laughs) Everybody gets a Christmas card this year with pictures of what they'll get after Christmas. A Christmas IOU. Exactly. You know, it's it's our good friend, um, you know, Mattress Mac here in Houston, Texas. Of course, he has a gallery furniture. One of his old sayings was that, uh, you know, shop at gallery furniture. And that way you don't sit on a back, 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 back order slip. And not that he stuttered. That was just the that's (laughs) just how he does it. That's how he does it. And of course, that's this year. A lot of people are working off back orders. Mm -hmm. So again, it's part of the whole supply chain problem. And uh, talking to my neighbor over the weekend is a good example of this. They just went and bought a new vehicle and they traded in their used car and he was very excited because he got almost as much for his used car as he paid for it and that just kind of really shows you kind of where we are but there was kind of two interesting points that that he made in terms of this you know transaction that he did on buying this new car so he traded in an old uh palisade that he had and it held almost all of its value and that's just because of the shortage of used cars right now people are are paying a nice premium used cars. Um, And then, of course, buying the new car, there were certain features that were missing on the car because of lack of semiconductors. So it it really just kind of shows you, you know, the, the trade kind of shows you where we are kind of still in this auto cycle that we're in, because again, there's just not enough components on semiconductor side. Batteries are in short supply. Just can't you know, and cars are being produced and put out that are lacking features because of the lack of semiconductors. So it's just and then, of course, on the other side, people are paying huge premiums for a depreciating asset. They're overpaying. I think about that for a minute. People are overpaying to buy a used car that depreciates. Now, the value of the used car right now is very elevated, but as soon as we solve, you know, any type of supply chain disruption, the value of those used cars are gonna very quickly revert to where they are, which means that when somebody goes to trade in that used car, the depreciation on the value of that used car is gonna be much greater than it would have been normally. So, you know, especially if used car prices return back to just kind of normal, normalistic levels the 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 loss of, of value on this now this is going to be tough for a lot of people and consumers in particular and this is one of the the side effects of what you get from shutting down an economy and creating these shortages but for a lot of people when they buy a car they know it's a depreciating asset right so they're going to be smart about it they're going to buy a used car because it has less you know has, has the depreciation kind of already built into the car they go, they get a loan for it. They go drive around on it for two, three years. They go to trade it in. And what they're hoping for is that maybe the equity value in the car is about even on the trade-in. In other words, they don't have a lot of negative equity. And one of the things that we're going to see over the course of the next couple of years is people trading in vehicles and picking up a lot of negative equity, and which means that negative equity has to get rolled into the cost of the new car they're buying – whether you either used or knew, that negative equity gets rolled in the cost of that car, which means that they've got a bigger loan balance on that car going forward, which means that car doesn't hold value, and then the, the negative equity continues to roll, and it rolls until the point that they can no longer afford to buy a car. So the point about this is, is this is all going to kind of push forward Future demand for vehicles. In other words, people are able to buy cars and roll them over, but that negative negative equity build is going to eventually force people to stay with the car. Rather than trading a car in every two or three years, they're gonna to have to hold the car a whole lot longer to try to work out of some of that negative equity position. They're not gonna be able, to, they're not gonna be able to make that trade to roll it in. This is gonna push out the demand for cars in the future to where people are holding on cars longer. That's gonna drive down value of cars and reduce this kind of demand crunch we've got for cars currently. So this is all what's going to cycle over the course of the next few years. And again, kind of the boom and bust in the auto cycle is not, you know, anything new. We see this all the time. It's just, you know, as you think about what's happening in the economy, we've done two things in the economy in particular. So by shutting down the economy, we created a lot of artificial demand for stuff. People panic when you take away stuff. <laughs> so, you know, if, if all of a sudden you say, hey, you're not going to be able to go to the grocery store and shop, people run to the grocery store and they buy a whole bunch of stuff they don't even need, right? They just they go into hoarding mode. So we create a lot of artificial demand when we shut down the economy. Then we open the economy back up. And unfortunately, now we've got more demand than we have the ability to produce supply for. So you have the supply demand imbalance, so you have these shortages which are driving up prices which drives individuals to buy more stuff they don't really need but they buy it because they may not be able to get it in the future. So when they go to the store and they see you know four bottles of water on the shelf, they're going to buy all four bottles because well everybody else is buying it out, so they better get it while they can get it. And it's just a psychological issue. And if you go to stores right now, you'll see a lot of this. You'll see certain pockets of the store will be a little like on the shelves, they'll be completely empty. And people are just and, and when people go down that aisle, they go, oh, wow, man, this stuff's almost empty. I better buy some. I don't really need it right now, but I better buy it anyway because it may not be here. So we create these supply-demand imbalances. And, and what we're doing is we're dragging forward all this future consumption so that when we get to that point in the future. What will happen is that this supply crunch we have, in other words, you know, these manufacturers and producers, etc., they're all ramping up the ability to meet what they perceive to be increased demand. So they're going, man, we're, we're selling out of everything. We produce it and it's already sold. So they ramp up production. So that supply comes up. And as supply comes up, demand will fall because you have more supply now. People go, well, they go to the store and there's plenty of water on the shelf now. So I don't really need it right now. I'll get it next time. So that psychological shift drives down the demand. And now you have an oversupply of product. Prices fall. You get deflationary pressures. Again, just economic cycles. The problem is, is that as individuals, we don't really think that far ahead. We kind of react to the moment. So right now, there seems to be a shortage on everything. I better go buy a car or a bottle of water or whatever it is. I better go buy toilet. <laughs> going back to, you know, where we were during the freeze, right? Better go buy toilet paper. May not be able to get it. You know, plenty of toilet paper out there. Just relax. No, not going to run short of toilet paper. <laughs> there was a funny video on the weekend. You know, and and this wife's talking about her husband because not her, sorry, not her husband, her son, her oldest son moves out of the house and moves into his place. Now, he's, you know, lived with his parents growing up. Then he lived in college in the dorm, right? So then he was in the military. And so he moves on and moves into his own place. And he calls up at four o'clock in the morning and says, Mom, where's the toilet paper? Well, every place he's been, the toilet paper's always been (laughs) supplied, right? And so he's got no toilet paper. And so she, she, she says, well, you have to go to the store and get the toilet paper. About four hours later, you know, she, finds, she hadn't heard from him. So she calls back to make sure things OK. And then uh, she texts back She says, is everything OK? And he takes back coffee filters.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so at least men are creative. Yeah, right. I'm just saying no, they're never short on toilet paper. Necessity
2: <laughs> and the mother of invention. <laughs>
1: exactly. So coffee filters are always in stock. <laughs> Just, just in case you're ever short of toilet paper, coffee filters are in stock. Talking about roughing it. <laughs> well, when I was growing up, my dad used to regale me with the tales of the Sears and Roebuck catalog.
2: Oh, yeah. My dad regaled me with tales of leaves.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, see, if you're not old enough to know what we're talking about, we're talking about back in the 30s and 40s and 50s when our, when our parents were growing up. They had outhouses. They didn't have indoor plumbing. And so in the outhouse, you would go to the outhouse and there'd be a Sears and Roebuck catalog Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that was your
2: dual purpose.
1: (laughs) Shop (laughs) (laughs) and clean up on aisle six. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I don't know how you digress there. supply and demand. That's where we were. So anyway, we'll, but you know, this is, you know, the point about that is, is that ultimately, you know, people do shift psychologically and they start to fill those gaps in supply and demand by changing their demand for products or looking for alternatives to products or 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 and or producers just simply start producing more than actual demand is and again so this is all going to affect the economy as we go forward and a lot of this inflationary build we see in the economy short term has really been driven by two things one and we touched on this a few minutes ago we had this four trillion, five trillion dollars worth of liquidity being thrown at the system. So all of a sudden everybody had excess cash to spend. Well, the average American isn't brilliant. So what did they do with the money we gave them? They spent it, right? They didn't save it. They spent it all. And they went and bought a bunch of stuff. They went and bought computers, they went and bought laptops, they bought phones, you know, they whatever they wanted to buy. They they were, you know, trading stocks on Robinhood app, you know, you name it. But we were giving them money and they were spending it almost right away. So not surprised we saw this big surge in demand for products that we couldn't meet. And that created that inflationary pressure. Now, this is one of the issues that Senator Joe Manchin has in regards to the BBB bill. So we just passed one you know, 2, three trillion for infrastructure, and now you want to pass another 1.7 trillion for the Build Back Better plan. And what he's concerned about, rightly so, is more inflation. Right, You're going to give people more money to spend. A lot of this Build Back Better plan was not building back better anything. It was just simply giving people more money to spend. And you've already got an inflationary problem in your economy that would only basically have thrown gas on a fire, which would have made it much more difficult to get economic activity back to more normalistic levels. Be right back after the break. (music)
2: Don't let 2022 be a repeat of the past year. Join Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso for their Essential Smart Money Tips for the New Year Candid Coffee event on Saturday, January 15th. You'll learn the landmines to avoid, tax advantages we see, and money tips you need to know in the new year. Register now for our next Candid Coffee at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. realinvestmentadvice.com.
0: You're listening to The Real Investment Show.
1: And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Meryl Sainz Roberts. Frank joining me this morning of course uh as we get into this uh week before Christmas all right so holiday short trading week volatility is going to be all over the place so you know don't read a whole lot into the market and and one thing is also just be careful here you this market's gonna be very whippy over the next you know few days uh, as we wrap up the year so again you know what you may see at the open this morning be careful panic selling You know, on a down day, because, again, these are the type of days that by the end of the day, you can be back to positive territory. Right. It's just it's just there's such going to be such light volume and low momentum that these markets are going to be just all over the place. Open up strong, wind up negative for the day type thing. So Just be careful. Right. Just just manage accordingly. Vancouver expects to be the first city in Canada with an all electric fire truck. This is interesting, right? The electric fire truck costs $300,000 more than a diesel model, produces 40 less, uh, pr- oh, sorry, pumps 40% less water, and it needs a diesel extender to actually make it useful. You know, this is the problem with, you know, this whole rush into, you know, green technology, et cetera, is that they're they're not efficient. Um, it requires the, the carbon footprint on these things are actually larger than, the proposed savings that you get by having an electric vehicle but you know this is kind of the kind of where we are right we've got this psychological shift that's going on within the country right now trying to kind of forge out this new direction into a cleaner more sustainable you know environment and you know this is this has got implications for and, and don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with any of that, right? It's just it has implications for the future of work, skill sets, et cetera. I was listening to a a video over the weekend talking about jobs and employment and you know fair wages, you know, kind of the normal conversation. We hear this a lot, right? You know people need to be paid a fair wage and you know, we've talked about this on the show before, is that there is no minimum wage. Uh, your minimum wage is zero. That's, you know, what you bring to the table, your skill set, your work ethic, those are what determine your wage. Very few people in this country actually work for minimum wages. And if you are working, and, and, and minimum wages, as we've said before, are kind of a starter salary. It's to test you out, it gives the employer the ability to test you out, it gives you the ability to prove yourself. And then if you prove yourself and work hard, you very quickly get moved up in the ladder. Most companies pay well above minimum wage. Now, the problem is technology. And, you know, so in this video that I was watching, it was talking about a guy who was in a manufacturing job, and he had lost his job, and the jobs had been moved overseas, and he was wanting to know when he was going to get his job back, right? And he's looking to the government to fix this problem. And this is kind of the idea with the build back better plan it's kind of the idea with the the infrastructure bill is that you know we're going to do these things we're going to create these government jobs and we're going to do these things the problem is not really something the government can solve ultimately and this is a this is a you problem not a government problem and depending upon government to fix these things leads to a whole lot of other problems Ultimately, more debts, more deficits, more spending, and really a very poor use of capital. One one of the the issues is that what private businesses do very well is invest capital. And the reason that that businesses are very good at investing capital is because they only have a, a limited amount of that capital, and they have to make it work. And generally... That capital is brought in by their outside investors or they've borrowed it from other people, the banks, whatever. But they have a limited access to that capital, and they have to be very efficient in making it work and becoming profitable. Otherwise, they're quickly out of business, and they still owe people a bunch of debt, right? So private business owners, right, they're the most efficient at expending capital and putting that capital to work, creating jobs, these type of things. This is why small business is so very important to the economic backbone of the country. You know, out of 30 million businesses in the country, only about 6 million of them actually have employees, and out of those 6 million companies that have employees, about 80% of them are small businesses, and they have, you know... Five, 10 employees, right? They're, they're, look, and just think about when you drive down the street right now, just look at all the businesses on the, on the right and left-hand side of the street. A lot of those are, you know, dry cleaners, nail salons, you know, mini marts, you know, little gas stations, whatever, right? A lot of these are small, independently owned. They're owned by your neighbors. That's how they, these people are making money for, for themselves. Right, and, growing their, and growing their own wealth. The problem is when we shift it to government, see, government has no responsibility for, for money. So they just throw it out there into the world, and they say, here you go, right? We just issued a bunch of debt, but they're not responsible for that debt. They don't have to personally be responsible for paying that debt off. Now, see, if we made all of a sudden, if we made Congress have to personally guarantee the debt that they spend, and in other words, if that debt has to be paid off and they didn't invest in something that would repay the debt, they had to personally pay it off, they'd be a lot more constructive about how they spent government money, right? They, if they had skin in the game, so to speak, they'd be a lot more constructive about how they spent your tax dollars. And that's the thing. Don't forget, when they borrow money, they borrow money from whom? You. You're loaning the government money. And the way that debt gets paid back is through your tax dollars. So when people look at the government and say, well, look, give me more free money, it ain't free. You're paying for it. You pay for it through taxes. You pay for it through inflation. You're you're liable for it. You may get the money in your hot little hands, but you're ultimately liable for it. And you'll eventually pay it. So the reality is, is that Businesses are going to export labor to the lowest cost producer. So the more that you demand higher wages in the US, the more those jobs are gonna get exported overseas or get replaced by technology. We're watching right now, we're seeing a very big surge in CapEx spending because companies are starting to figure out ways to reduce their labor needs by automating certain areas and aspects of their business through automation. More technology fewer employees, increases profit margins on the bottom line. And so this is why it's going to be important. And I have this conversation with my kids probably once a week at least, right? Because I've got two that are just, on, they're 18, just on the verge of going to college next year. And so they're, they're kind of going through that, you know, what I want to be when I grow up phase. And I'm like, that's not even a question, you don't get to pick anymore about what you want to be when you grow up. You better be picking a job that's going to be available to you when you grow up <laughs> and graduate college. You know, I'm gonna to go to college because I, you know, I, I want to be a sociologist or I want to be a vet or I want to be, you know, a, a doctor or whatever it is. Those, those are all fine. Those are all fine skill sets. The question you have to ask is: Is that a job that will pay me in the future? And I'm not saying they won't, right? I'm just saying this is the question you've got to ask. Where is the future going to be? And what is it? And this is the conversation we have, and, and I, I use the old Wayne Gretzky quote more often than I should, is you've got to be skating to where the puck is going to be. And that's what you've got to be looking for down the road. And this is the thing that we need to be telling and teaching our students coming up is we need to be giving them access to these skill sets that they need in the future, you know when I, when I was growing up, and Brent was growing up, we used to have shop class in, in high school, actually even in intermediate school when i was now can you imagine this today when I was in an intermediate school in sixth grade, we were being taught how to weld now, can you imagine parents today sending their kids to school and they're going to be using an arc welt <laughs> an arc welder in school in sixth grade parents would be losing their mind like oh my god but no we, we were we were you know sixth grade seventh grade eighth grade ninth grade we had shop class we learned to work on cars we learned to you know build things in in wood shop. we had welding class now when we when we got through school Right? and got through the semester and got through the school year, were we all licensed welders? No, that wasn't the point. The point was to introduce students to opportunity and to skill sets. And there was a lot of kids that I graduated high school with that went on to be auto mechanics and welders and construction workers and pipe fitters, and they made good money. They opened up their own businesses but we don't offer those type of skill sets anymore right we don't teach that in high school we don't teach it in intermediate school because you know some kid arc welded his finger off the school got sued and you know it's like oh my god we can't teach that anymore (laughs) little jimmy put his eye out yeah you know that's you know this is the problem with society in, in a lot of cases but The point is that in the future if we're going to solve some of these economic inequalities we've got to go back to the beginning and start teaching people the skill sets they need to reinvent themselves in the new economy so for the guy that lost his job in the manufacturing facility that job's not ever coming back Got to learn a new skill set and the problem is is we're doing a very poor job economically and government-wise of teaching those jobs to americans be right back
0: get daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com don't let
2: 2022 be a repeat of the past year Join Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso for their Essential Smart Money Tips for the New Year Candid Coffee event on Saturday, January 15th. You'll learn the landmines to avoid, tax advantages we see, and money tips you need to know in the new year. Register now for our next Candid Coffee at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com.
0: The Real Investment Show.
1: And welcome back to Social More at 647. Today's blog post, Bull Markets and Why We Repeat Our Mistakes, uh, kind of a look at the psychology of investing this morning on our blog site. So simply go by realinvestmentadvice.com, get our latest blog post. Talking a little bit about the things that we do repeatedly over and over. And, you know, it's interesting because I get emails every day from people, you know, asking questions. And, you know, if you kind of take a, a sampling of the questions that come in, you start seeing the psychological impediments that impact investors' outcomes long-term. And we kind of go through, there's, there's kind of nine basic components, and, and we've quoted Dow Bar studies before, and there's kind of nine basic psychological tendencies, behaviors, that we have as investors, you know, from loss aversion to narrow framing, anchoring, mental accounting, lack of diversification, hurting, regret, media, optimism. You know, these are all things that tend to get us in more trouble than not. Now, the important thing about these psychological behaviors, and again, as I said, I get all these emails, you can almost pick these things out. You know, I get emails quite often it's like, well, I bought this stock at you know, $50. It's now at $30. What do you think I should do? Well, see, they're anchoring to the $50. That's what I bought it for. So I'm anchored to that $50, right? I need to get back to that $50. I need to get my money back. That's not the way markets work. Markets don't care about what you paid for something. What you have to do as an investor is saying, I paid $50. I'm now at $30. I'm not willing to lose any more money. I've got to make a different decision. You know, when the markets decline a little bit, you start, I start getting emails about, you know, oh my gosh, when's I got one yesterday? When's the selling ever going to end? Well, we just had a rally. So where was the email from you on the rally that says when's the buying ever going to end? Right? We we don't ever we don't ever look at it that way. We just want markets just to go up and up and up, but they don't. Nothing goes straight up over time. You got if, if, if the markets are going up, you're going to have to have some selling pressure. And this is why we talk regularly about taking profits. When markets get overbought, it takes profits. When markets get oversold, that's where we want to start buying a little bit, putting some capital back to work. But as investors, right, we get overly optimistic. And so when markets are going up, we just, man, this is great. They're just going to keep going up. And then, As soon as they start selling off, it's like, oh, my gosh, when's the selling ever going to end? It's it's just never going to stop. Of course it's going to stop, right? And markets are going to rebound. But the problem is is that we then throw in this idea about loss aversion, which is now the markets are declining. I don't want to lose any more money, so I'm going to sell everything. I'm not going to sell a little bit. I'm going to sell it all, right? I just can't stand to lose any more money, so I'm just going to sell everything because I've got to avoid the losses, right? We've got, to, we've got to avert any future losses. This was our article out we had out, out last week about being 100% cash can be just as bad as the market crash itself. But that's loss aversion. Investors go to 100% cash because I simply don't want to lose any more money, and then when the market starts to rally back, they go, yeah, but it's going to come back down again. And it keeps going. And then, well, well, now it's overbought, so I can't get in. i got to wait for a correction. keeps going higher. Well, as soon as it corrects again, then I'll I'll get back in. But it never gets back to where they were when they sold out, so they never get back in. And, And, look, we see people regularly in our offices that have been out of the market since 2008, 2009. And now trying to figure out how to get back in. But, see, that's how markets work. And that's why we've, and you know, the hardest aspect of investing is setting aside that emotional look. I'm emotional too. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not Spock, right? (laughs) I've got emotions. And so when markers are moving up and down, I get emotional too, but I have to sit there and step back and say, what does the technical analysis say? What does the fundamental analysis say? And, and try to drive investment decisions unemotionally based on that analysis, even though my stomach may be churning up in knots. But that's part of being a portfolio manager, right? I'm responsible for all these people's money, and and their money is very valuable to them. This is their retirement. This is their kids' futures. This is their futures. I mean... I've got a tremendous amount of responsibility managing other people's money. I would much rather just manage my own money. If I lose my own money, I like, I don't care. <laughs> I do. Not really, but I do. But it's just me. I mean, I'm only screwing up my future, but when I screw up everybody else's future, that's a heavy burden. And that's why we, we focus so much on... Technical, fundamental, momentum analysis, right? Trying to understand what markets are doing. And and look, we can't predict. You know, we develop tools that can give us some ability to to make an educated guess at what the markets are going to do, but it doesn't always work out to be the case. But this is where, again, it's the hard part is setting aside. And look, and, and these emails that I get, also feed into my emotional bias, right? When I start getting a bunch of emails from people going, when's the selling ever going to stop? You know, I start questioning myself. And I've got to be careful about that because I can't be influenced by other people, right? That's hurting. Hurting, you know, think like a cattle herd. If you ever notice cows all point in the same direction when they're eating or moving around, what are they doing? They're all facing in the same direction. That's the herd. And as investors, we tend to move with the herd. So whatever the herd's doing, if everybody's buying ARC stocks, then everybody buys ARC stocks. When everybody's selling ARC stocks, everybody sells ARC stocks. This is a problem, right? Because... The herd itself is typically right in the middle of a move. The herd is often wrong at the beginning or end of a move. At the beginning of a bull market, you're just coming out of what? A bear market. Back in 2009, we were trying to get people back in the market, and they were going... Are you crazy? Haven't you heard? This market's going to zero. We were at 666 on the S&P at the low. No biblical reference there, just complete irony. But at that point, investors were convinced we were going to zero on the index. It was over. Done. Financial markets were finished. The banks were all gone. It was the Great Depression Part Two. And that was the beginning of the bull market. Now, here we are, 12 years later, 13 years later, and investors can't wait to get in the markets. Now, are we still in the middle of a move? Are we at the end of a move? Who knows? But at the end of a move, people are typically overly optimistic, and they think the market can only do one thing, and that's just go higher. That's why herds are typically wrong at the beginning and the end. In the middle, they're probably right. There is a psychological pressure on markets, and when you have a massive herd of people all doing one thing in the middle of a move, it tends to ex- extrapolate that move. But that's how you get extremes on either ends. That's how you get an extreme in the sell-off and an extreme in the bull markets because of the herd. So when I start getting all these emails, back to my point, I start – Getting that same hurting psychology everybody else says. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everybody else is right. And that's why it's tough. It's very tough. And this is the, the point of the article. We have a very, humans have a very short term memory of pain. And the reason is that back in caveman days, UGG. Goes out of the cave and he gets attacked by a saber-toothed tiger, right? So he runs back to the cave. He escapes and he runs back to the cave. Now it's a terrible, painful experience, right? Getting attacked by a saber-tooth. But if he remembers that pain to the extreme that it was at the time, he would never leave the cave again, right? So, as a matter of survival, our we have a very short memory of extreme pain. I mean, think about it this way: talk to any woman who's ever had a baby, and they will tell you it's the worst pain they've ever had, right? But if they remembered that pain to the to, to the actual moment, nobody ever have. Well, after you had one kid, nobody ever have a second kid, right? Too much pain, so we forget about it over time. And it's just our psychological makeup it's 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 how we function because if we remember that pain and relive that pain constantly we can't move forward this is the problem with ptsd right they relive that that agony and they can't move forward and that's the markets if we remembered the the all the pain and and all that agony we went through when we lost half our money back in 2008 we would never move forward And so this is why we have a very short term memory of that. But it's important not to forget the behaviors that we were doing that got us into trouble in the first place. And that's the biggest problem that investors have, and particularly today, given that there's a massive number of investors in the market that have never been through a bear market. A lot of that experience, that knowledge of painful bear markets and what happens in the bad investment mistakes we make have all been forgotten and we're repeating those things again that article's on the website realinvestmentadvice.com have a great day we'll be back here tomorrow michael lebowitz to join us we'll talk a little bit about where we are on inflation fed policy and what that means for you and your money see you back here tomorrow on the real investment show i'm your host lance roberts
0: It's a rich man's world, it's a
2: rich man's world.